It's the Hospital Medicine Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Gil Peratt. Today we are moving on with the topic of blood transfusion, and today we're specifically talking about when to transfuse. I must emphasize a few points at the start of this talk. I do not treat children, and this podcast applies solely to adult patients. The second point is that we probably all have heard certain doctors say the following about giving blood. It might help, and it can't hurt. And that is a statement that can only be said by someone who knows almost nothing about transfusing blood. It is along the lines of saying putting vodka in the bottle helps the baby sleep. It does, but it is unacceptable. And quoting page 2166 from the 7th edition of William's hematology textbook, up to 20% of all transfusions may lead to some type of adverse reaction. The average sized person has about 35 trillion red blood cells, also known as erythrocytes. When do we decide to add to those trillions of erythrocytes? There won't be any hard recommendations from me regarding transfusion triggers since I don't feel qualified setting the universal threshold that nobody else seems to be able to identify either. But I do think a lot of us have an enormous amount we can learn about this topic, which I hope to shed just a little bit of light on today. Mostly, transfusion of PACREV blood cells is a clinical decision based on the circumstances. The decision to transfuse or not is often based in logic and opinion and not always evidence-based, with some exceptions definitely worth mentioning. Transfusion guidelines were published in 2001 by the Blood Transfusion Task Force of the British Committee for Standards in Hematology. As you will hear, a lot of data and opinions cited today by me arrived after 2001. So look at those guidelines from 2001, which nothing I will say necessarily refutes. However, without a good knowledge base, just reading those guidelines probably will not be of benefit. So let's bring on the knowledge. The trigger for transfusion can't be solely based on a number in all occasions, particularly during rapid loss from a GI bleed or trauma. In those cases, the hemoglobin and the hematocrit will not drop at all, even after you lose 50% of blood, 80% of blood, whatever percent of your blood volume you lose, you're not going to drop the hemoglobin and hematocrit right away. Because, and this is important to remember, the hematocrit is not a measure of blood volume. Rather, the hematocrit is a measure of urethrocytes in a given blood volume. If you haven't received full fluid resuscitation, that number often doesn't change. And the classic example is to use a tasty drink of your choice. I will use Guinness beer. If I pour out half of my Guinness which should be a crime punishable by imprisonment, the concentration of beer hasn't changed, just as the hematocrit doesn't change if you pour out half a glass of blood. If you pour out half a glass of blood and sent a tube of blood to the lab of what remains in that glass, the measure of urethrocytes in a milliliter of blood hasn't changed from before. 
When you fill that glass up with normal saline, then the hematocrit will drop. During rapid hemorrhage, you won't change the hematocrit or the hemoglobin because there is not enough time for the process of hemodilution to take place with crystalloids or colloids, and you therefore should be transfusing packed red blood cells based on the clinical situation. Therefore, the discussion of what level of anemia should trigger transfusion does not apply to those you clinically expect to keep losing blood at a fast pace or even a moderate pace. Hemodynamic instability from hemorrhagic shock is a condition and not just a number. There's another big reason we shouldn't base transfusion solely on a number, even when we aren't talking about acute hemorrhage. That reason is sex. Females have lower hematocrits than males, and to use one single number, like a hematocrit of 30, for everybody would just be silly. Many of us have seen patients such as Jehovah's Witnesses refuse transfusion, and we can be amazed at just how low the hemoglobin can go. If you are young enough and healthy enough with physiologic reserve, the ability to endure anemia on occasion can be impressive. I saw a patient with a GI bleed totally awake and alert, though very fatigued with a hemoglobin of 3. Most probably will not do well with that hemoglobin level, but my own eyes have shown me it's tolerable in at least a very few otherwise healthy people. My eyes unfortunately have also provided me with many more experiences when rapid acute blood loss is not tolerated at all. Acute blood loss decreases oxygen delivery to tissues and can cause hypoperfusion and circulatory failure. Rapid blood loss raises the risk of hypotension, lactic acidosis, hemorrhagic shock, and then death. So here's a question worth asking. What percent of ICU patients are anemic? And since I couldn't believe the answer myself, I will answer the question in a quote from an April 17, 2007 New England Journal of Medicine editorial titled, Blood Transfusion, When is More Really Less? And they say, by the third day in the intensive care unit, 95% of critically ill patients have anemia, and 40 to 50% of them will receive on average almost five units of red cells during their stay in the ICU. And that's the end of the quote. So what is a good transfusion trigger for an adult patient in the ICU not having acute hemorrhage? Most of us these days will say a hemoglobin of seven, and a few will disagree. The randomized controlled trial using restrictive versus liberal erythrocyte transfusion in the ICU was called the TRICK study, and it's, you know, T-R-I-C-C, not T-R-I-C-K. So the TRICK study, T-R-I-C-C, stands for Transfusion Requirements in Critical Care and has been controversial. Some do not like that study because of the exclusion criteria. Therefore, there is concern among some that is not totally generalizable to all ICU patients. And what is happening clinically is more important than going strictly off of the data from this study. Let's look at the study of medical and surgical patients. The patients were randomized to transfuse liberally at a hemoglobin of 10 or restrictively with a transfusion trigger of a hemoglobin of only 7. 
the conclusion from the abstract of the trick trial published in February 11, 1999 in the New England Journal of Medicine was this. A restrictive strategy of red cell transfusion is at least as effective and possibly superior to a liberal transfusion strategy in critically ill patients with the possible exception of patients with acute myocardial infarction and unstable angina. Emphasis purposely put on the word possible when talking about MI and unstable angina. I will address the sometimes confusing transfusion issues in those with cardiac disease in a few minutes. To discuss the results and opinions of this frequently cited data, I will provide a few of the written evaluations of the TRIC trial already present in the medical literature. Let's get back to that April 19, 2007 editorial I cited that summarizes things pretty nicely, and I'll quote them. The restrictive group received 54% fewer red cell units than the liberal group did, and the restrictive strategy was found to be at least as effective as the liberal strategy with respect to mortality. In patients who were less acutely ill with a score of less than 20 on the Apache 2 or under 55 years of age, the restrictive strategy was actually superior since it was associated with a decrease in mortality as compared with the liberal strategy. And that's the end of that quote. What do the reviewers from the online resource up to date say? Pretty much the same thing, but in different words. I'll quote them to reemphasize the important points of a frequently cited trial, which is this trick trial. And they say this, Red blood cell transfusions were previously given routinely whenever the hemoglobin level was less than 10. This practice was based upon unproven physiological and clinical assumptions. However, a hemoglobin concentration of less than 7 became the accepted threshold after the multicenter transfusion requirement in critical care trial, the TRIC trial. The trial randomly assigned 838 critically ill patients to either a restrictive transfusion strategy, which was a transfusion threshold less than 7, as I said, or a liberal transfusion strategy where the threshold was less than 10, and found that the restrictive strategy decreased hospital mortality. Among patients who were less than 55 years old or less acutely ill with the Apache score less than 20, a restrictive strategy also reduced 30-day mortality. Use of a lower hemoglobin concentration as a threshold for transfusion is also supported by several observational studies that found that red blood cell transfusions were associated with adverse outcomes, such as increased risk of infection, acute respiratory distress, multi-organ dysfunction, and death. So that's what the current version of UpToDate has to say. There is a point that I think often gets lost in discussing trials like the TRIC trial. Anemia increases the risk of death in the critically ill just as it does in surgical patients. Trials like TRIC don't change the fact that anemia increases mortality. Instead, what some of these trials are showing is that transfusing blood in certain anemic populations may not improve mortality and may actually worsen it. So let's move on. Transfusion thresholds in those with coronary artery disease requires extra special attention. First of all, 
Part of the problem is we don't always know whether someone may have coronary artery disease, as a lot of people have asymptomatic disease and even silent heart attacks. There was a Polish poet named Stanislaw Lech who said, Don't trust the heart, it wants your blood. And as a side note, Mr. Lech was a Jewish man in a Nazi labor camp in World War II, and a guard took him out to dig his own grave, at which time he killed the guard with his shovel and escaped. So a rather amazing story, and as he well knew, his words reflect more than emotion when he said, Don't trust the heart, it wants your blood. But how much blood does that heart really need? If you use more than one source for information on this topic, you can get some crossed signals when reading about transfusing blood in those with coronary artery disease. For example, looking at the MIXAT, the Medical Knowledge Self-Assessment Program of Pulmonary and Critical Care and Pulmonology on page 73 of the most current version, it says those with coronary disease, particularly uncorrected coronary anatomy, seem to do better keeping the hemoglobin above 10. I'm not really sure the mix app is correct in saying that. Others have very reasonable objections, and I will share those. There was a meta-analysis published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, October 6, 2006, titled Relationship of Blood Transfusion and Clinical Outcomes in Patients with Acute Coronary Syndromes. The authors looked at data in patients with ischemic heart disease who developed anemia acutely during a hospitalization. Some of the conclusion I will quote, which is this, Blood transfusion in the setting of acute coronary syndromes is associated with higher mortality. Okay, so not what the mix app is saying. Um, They also say, and this is a quote, the increased risk of death associated with transfusion was present after adjustment for demographic characteristics and in-hospital events such as bleeding and invasive procedures. One other quote from them is, We suggest caution regarding the routine use of blood transfusion to maintain arbitrary hematocrit levels in stable patients with coronary heart disease. So that's the end of that quote from that 2006, October 6 study. So that data differed a bit from a New England Journal of Medicine observational study published in 2001 by the first author, Wu, W-U, But please be on notice that none of these trials are randomized controlled trials. The authors of the 2006 JAMA study do spend a lot of time explaining why the results differ from the New England Journal of Medicine study by Wu that was titled Blood Transfusion in Elderly Patients with Acute Myocardial Infarction. And they needed to address it in detail because the conclusion from Wu's retrospective data was this. Blood transfusion is associated with a lower short-term mortality rate among elderly patients with acute myocardial infarction if the hematocrit on admission is 30% or lower. Bear with me for a moment while I go back to the trick trial of critical care patients just for a few moments because in their discussion they also talk a bit about coronary disease and I'm going to quote them. There is also concern about the adverse effects of anemia in patients with ischemic heart disease. 
two large cohort studies found that an increasing severity of anemia was associated with a disproportionate increase in mortality rates among patients with ischemic heart disease. In our study, however, patients with diagnosis of cardiac disease did not have more adverse outcomes when a transfusion threshold of seven was used. The apparent discrepancy between our results and those of previous studies may be the result of confounding or inability to document the negative effects of transfusion in the observational studies. Now, I'll try and put that in easier to understand language. In the TRIC trial, physicians often wouldn't let their patients with severe coronary artery disease participate in that study. So we have a hard time concluding about coronary artery disease and transfusion from the TRIC data itself. For now, until we have additional randomized control trials, we won't know the answers and we will all have to use some clinical judgment based on the limited data we do have. I personally am entrenched in the camp that an asymptomatic patient with coronary artery disease and a hemoglobin below 10 does not need a transfusion, though I also look for ways to correct their anemia. So while I have conservative triggers for transfusing blood, I will be aggressive in looking at sources of blood loss from the GI tract, uterine bleeding, nutritional deficiencies, whatever it is. One more piece of data that addresses the topic of anemia and cardiovascular events comes from a fairly recent trial published November 16, 2006. And that was in the New England Journal of Medicine as well. And it was titled, Normalization of Hemoglobin Level in Patients with Chronic Kidney Disease and Anemia. To quote the entire conclusion from the abstract, they say, in patients with chronic kidney disease, Early complete correction of anemia does not reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. And that's the end of the quote. So pretty interesting. The great American thinker Robin Williams said, The problem is that God gave man a brain and a penis and only enough blood to run one at a time. I don't know if that is proven by science, but I do suspect he is correct. As we all know, losing blood and becoming anemic never really helps matters. There's nothing groundbreaking when I quote a recent Lancet, October 6, 2011 study, where they say preoperative anemia, even to a mild degree, is independently associated with an increased risk of 30-day morbidity and mortality in patients undergoing major non-cardiac surgery. The question then becomes, does replacing a low hemoglobin or hematocrit with blood decrease that risk? Should we be correcting the anemia with non-blood product mechanisms that can take a long time to work before elective surgery, you know, using erythropoietin or whatever? Is the anemia simply a marker of poor protoplasm, I think is the big question. Should holding off on elective surgery and thoroughly evaluating anemia first be accomplished? Perhaps replacing patients preoperatively is the best way to proceed, and perhaps it isn't. We know that an albumin of less than 3.5 is a major risk factor for per surgical outcomes. I think replacing albumin preoperatively would be pissing in the wind, though I've heard of a small number of surgeons who actually do that and give people albumin preoperatively. 
I'm sure that the data from Lancet and many others regarding preoperative anemia will spur important studies regarding preoperative transfusion needs. For now, in my opinion, it is definitely subject to change. I think it may be reasonable on rare occasions to do preoperative transfusions to get the hemoglobin above 10, especially if, and this is an important if, if significant blood loss is expected. I will also emphasize the word significant and try to qualify it. Why? Well, it's important you listeners know that many experts disagree with me and think all prophylactic transfusions of blood is irresponsible, and they might be right. It would be fantastic to have some more data on this topic. Also, I don't do prophylactic transfusions if I think the hemoglobin is only going to drop a point or two. It really is for those patients I think are going to bleed significantly when I weigh all of their preoperative factors. Let me provide a statement of counter-argument that comes from February 11th, 1999 in the New England Journal of Medicine in a really terrific article everybody should read called Transfusion Medicine, and it starts on page 445, and they say, Guidelines for blood transfusion have been issued by several organizations, including the National Institutes of Health and the American College of Physicians. These guidelines recommend that blood not be transfused prophylactically and suggest that in patients who are not critically ill, the threshold for transfusion should be a hemoglobin level of 7 to 8. So that's the end of the quote. No doubt many also have some strong opinions about perioperative blood transfusions. I would like to share with you the opinion of another hospitalist that I have never met. His name is A.J. Kumar, who authored a sizable article devoted to the topic, and it's titled, Perioperative Management of Anemia, Limits of Blood Transfusion and alternatives to it. And this was published in the Cleveland Clinic of Medicine in November of 2009. Read it for the details, but his conclusion was this. Anemia is associated with increased morbidity and mortality in the perioperative setting. Perioperative blood transfusion is one method of raising hemoglobin levels in anemic surgical patients but it increases perioperative morbidity in the form of acute transfusion reactions, immunosuppression, postoperative infection, and longer hospital stay. So now instead of the preoperative setting, he's more talking about the perioperative setting. When we look at less than ideal retrospective studies, like the one printed in JAMA in 1998 titled Perioperative Blood Transfusion and Postoperative Mortality, it appears that receipt of blood transfusion did not influence mortality in patients with hemoglobin concentrations of 8 or greater. So opinions regarding transfusion do remain guided, just not by the most marvelous of data. We have some knowledge gaps that definitely need filling. It must be stated there are other alternatives other than allogenic blood. Intraoperative recovery and reinfusion of blood is one such option. It has real issues in regards to health risk, effectiveness, and economic costs, but there are certain situations it can be reasonable. It's not a topic I know a lot about since I'm not a surgeon, but there are plenty of good articles that discuss it if you are interested in that topic. Autologous blood, I briefly mentioned in my last podcast, is when a patient gives 
her own blood before surgery to be retransfused only if needed during or after surgery. Autologous blood can be a topic of its own podcast, but in summary, it is wasteful because half of it is thrown away. It's not even close to cost-effective. In fact, it's a real waste of healthcare dollars and doesn't eliminate concerning health risks. Is causing a preoperative anemia a good idea? Well, no, I already said that's a, that's a bad idea. However, if you donate your own blood a few weeks before the surgery, you may not be anemic. But now you have old blood, and those risks of old blood I discussed in my last podcast. The risks of administrative errors and bacterial infection also don't go down. In fact, you may be increasing the likelihood you now need blood that you may never have needed because you are more anemic than you would have been if you didn't donate your blood. So theoretically, maybe those risks of administrative errors and bacterial infection of your blood actually increase, since every time you get blood, even your own, there is some yet risk. And yes, there is decreased risk of getting HIV by donating your own blood, but go back to my last podcast to learn that the modern-day risk of viral infection, while not to be totally ignored, is smaller compared to most other risks in transfusion. Where it may make the most sense to use autologous transfusions is in those with known difficult-to-match immunologic incompatibilities, and very rare blood types. I think it is more than worthy to mention the issue of graft versus host disease. And this topic ties into a question I get asked by loved ones of patients all the time when they say, can I donate blood my family member needs? Um, either in the setting of acute hemorrhage, I sometimes get asked that, which is just ridiculous, or preoperatively. And I remember when I first came to the hospital I work at about uh, nine or ten years ago, I took care of a cop, a retired cop, and his two sons were Colorado Springs police officers, and they were always in the room when I was seeing their dad. And they asked me if they could donate blood to their father who was having an acute GI hemorrhage. So I said, no, that's not really practical. Then one of them pulled me into the hallway and, and took me aside and said, hey, doc, can you make sure that the blood is Italian blood? And I swear that story is true. So I assured him that, no, I could not figure out um, the genetic heritage of the blood. But there is the issue of family donation for use in family members being impractical during acute whatever is happening. But there are other concerns as well. There is a doctor who I've never met but does a really good podcast, and I genuinely respect him. He does on critical care issues. And there's a snippet where he talks about donating blood to his son when his son needed blood, something any loved one would be happy to do. But in my opinion, not always a great idea, despite the altruism and good intent that goes into it. First of all, there are some that think the restrictions put on volunteers makes that supply even safer than family blood. Let's say you really do think your blood is safe because you really aren't having love affairs, prostitutes, drug use, and other risks that you don't want to confess to your spouse when the doctor asks you in front of your spouse if you want to give 
blood to a family member. But let's look at the textbook Wintro Clinical Hematology, 11th edition, page 839, which says this, social pressures to donate may make donors with risk factors reluctant to self-exclude. Also, directed donations are more likely to be first-time donors who have a higher incidence of positive tests for infectious markers. Now, there's another problem, and that's this graft versus host concern, a rare issue, and it's unlikely to happen uh, even when you're donating to relatives, but when it does, oh boy, is it bad. I've never seen it, but everybody that I've talked to, a few hematologists i talked to about this, as well as pathologists who know the cases, uh, say they've never seen anybody survive this. Let me first quote the textbook Williams Hematology, 7th edition, published in 2006 from 2,164, and it says this, Donors recruited from among family members, contrary to expectation, are no safer than volunteer blood donors. Fatal graft versus host reactions have been reported involving unusual HLA similarities between close relatives. Let me put graft versus host from blood transfusion in perspective. Um, I would pick for myself or for a patient the potentially fatal mistransfusion with an incompatible blood type any day before graft versus host induced by a blood transfusion. I've never seen it, and I want to say this is a bit different than graft versus host from organ transplants or hematopoic stem cell transplants. This, this is a different beast, although those can on occasion be terrible too and fatal. This is apparently universally fatal or near universally fatal when it happens from blood transfusion. Now, if a family member is giving blood and it's given by a close relative, definitely have the blood irradiated to impair lymphocytes and therefore try and prevent this graft-versus-host disease. And in that case, maybe it is a good idea to give blood to your son or whoever, but you really got to remember as a doctor, if a family member is going to be giving blood to another family member, irradiate it. I want to talk for a second about blood substitutes or artificial blood, which would be of great benefit to Jehovah's Witnesses that refuse transfusion of blood products, and without a doubt would also decrease transfusion transmitted infection risk. It would be great for the Department of Defense, particularly in field traumas. That is why over a billion dollars have been spent on trying to make such products. Heck, it would be great for everybody. No compatibility testing, a room temperature product, put the stuff on ambulances. It would just be terrific. That is why attempts at cell-free hemoglobin, among other products, have been undertaken. Unfortunately, they do not work. Someday we may have something that is worthy of using, but not now. Jehovah's Witnesses will ask you about 
blood alternatives because they heard these products are available and effective, but they are wrong, really wrong and misinformed for the moment. I'm sure someday the technology will be there, so we will need to wait patiently when that safe, effective blood alternative is made successfully. Invest whatever you got to spare in that company. Now, lastly, let's talk about anemia of chronic disease. There was a review article March 10th, 2005 in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Anemia of Chronic Disease, and the author said this, It is important to note that existing guidelines for the management of anemia of chronic disease in patients with cancer or chronic kidney disease do not recommend long-term blood transfusion therapy in their management algorithms because of the risks associated with long-term transfusion such as iron overload and sensitization to HLA antigens that may occur in patients before renal transplantation. Hey, did I just mention iron overload? Sounds like a great topic to discuss in the next podcast about blood transfusions. Talk to you soon. If you're getting anything out of this, I really appreciate all the reviews everybody has written in iTunes. You go ahead and write yours right now. Bye.